Let's uh, bow in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity of being here and just thank you for your grace and thank you for the fact, the provisions you've given us. We, we don't deserve any of it and um, just are grateful for the provisions you've given us totally apart from anything that we've done or can do and thankful that you use servants um, like us. You could have used angels to do what we are doing today and yet you chose to use fallible men and we're so thankful for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So we were talking about the mysteries concerning maturity and that God is giving certain mysteries for those who are maturing. And we left off one, so I wanted to cover that one before we, we um, go forward. And it's in First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 9, and it's the mystery concerning the faith. And probably one of the more difficult mysteries to really um, uh, identify because it's not handed to us on a silver platter, though I think the context would help us to be able to understand it. And so this is concerning deacons, and so we'll be going over this in the deacon class <laughs> at some point. And so it's one of the things that the deacon is going to have to uh, hold to, and it's the mystery concerning the faith. And so here's one of the mysteries, and it's... Uh, uh, you just, again, remember these mysteries were not things that were revealed to generations or to ages. So spirit beings did not know about them. Uh, people did not know about them. And this is very important to understand. Why do I continue to hammer this? It's because of the fact that in past dispensations, uh, God was dealing with something completely different. And so you have a lot of people today who are saying that the Old Testament and the New Testament are all the same. There's been a progression all the way. I mean, there's been no progression all the way through and it's all the same. Well, this uh, idea of the mysteries would really throw a monkey wrench in that. And so these are things that were not revealed to Old Testament saints. None of the Old Testament saints you could think of knew about these mysteries. And so here we go. And this is the one we, we covered all the other mysteries last week. Um, and so here you have this one concerning the faith. And so a couple of things is interesting here concerning the deacons. And I, and I will say this, and we've been talking about this in the new membership class. There are two different realms of authority in the church. So you have the spiritual realm of authority in which the pastor teacher uh, is supposed to set the agenda of what scripture says. And so the pastor teacher is not a CEO. He's not the CEO of the church. And so we're in the process now of making sure that there is a disconnect between the pastor teacher and the business side of the church. And that's the way that it's supposed to be. Right. So if I drop dead right now, the church should be able to go on business wise and then be able to find another pastor teacher. Right. And so the other side of it is the business side of the church. And so you have the business side of the church and in the business side of the church, you have the deacons who are leading the charge and handling the physical business of the church. And so you have those two realms of authority, and so the church has a, has, handles the business side of it, and really the pastor shouldn't tell the church what to do, business-wise. I know I've seen a lot of pastors, they stick their nose into everything. They're there when the money is being counted. <laughs> I've seen it. They're there at every turn. They know who's giving, how much they're giving, and the whole ball of wax. You know, and none of that is really the pastor's responsibility. And so it's the responsibility of the pastor to set the spiritual agenda. Now, why do I say that? Because when you come to this issue of deacons, 
the deacons are running the operations of the church as far as the business side of the church. And, and so and in the church, you have one man, one vote. And so all of the church is involved in that regard. And so then you have these deacons. So why, is it, is it, why do I say that? Because there is a, the standards for the deacons are very high, very high. And one of the things you see right off the shoot is that the standard for the deacons, there's a, a qualification for the deacon's wife. But there's no qualification for the pastor teacher's wife, to which Joyce has always said, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> and she added an amen to that. <laughs> but there's a qualification for the uh, deacon's wife. Now, why is that? It really shows you something. It ought to scream something to you that there's a qualification for the deacon's wife and not the pastor's wife. And so here you have in the, in the business of the church <coughs> that the deacons are handling the business of the church. And one of the things that you have as a qualification for a deacon's wife is they not be a gossip. And they're not someone who's going to go around telling the business of the church all over the place. See, the pastor's wife don't have to worry about that because she's not involved in the business. She shouldn't be uh, to that degree. Hopefully I can get my wife away from all parts of the business of the church because she really shouldn't be in that, that, ca that case. I hope somebody else takes that job. Someone said to me, well, why don't you keep the checkbook at your house? Absolutely not. <laughs> it will never enter the door of my house, ever. <laughs> not <in your> house. <laughs> well, you know, it just... It's some things that you just say ought not to be. If it's possible for it not to be that way, I guarantee you it will not be. Because there needs to be a separation between the business of the church and the pastor teacher and the spiritual side of the church. And so why is this important? Now you come to this mystery. And so there's something asked of deacons. Now you don't even see that the pastor teacher is asked to hold this mystery. Well, he probably should understand it. But the deacons are asked to hold a mystery that no one else is asked to hold. And it shows you how important that is. This office is. And so notice in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good report. Uh, let's go down in verse 8 is where we want to pick it up. Of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Likewise, must, or really it's necessary, likewise, um, that the deacons be grave. Um, and so this idea of a grave, uh, not mean that he just come away from a grave, <laughs> but the word simnos is actually used in the uh, Greek, um, classical Greek of the Greek gods, and they were seen as this. Semnos, that they were above it all. They were above all. People looked at the Greek gods as being separate from the people. And the deacons have to have that demeanor that they're above all, that they're not uh, frivolous is the idea behind it. And there's, some, there's seriousness, there's a gravity to them uh, in which they, they, they conduct themselves and not double-tongued. Um, and not speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Not given to much wine. Can't be a lush. <laughs> no luscious. <laughs> Qualifier. <laughs> 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 
not greedy for money or filthy lucre. <laughs> holding, and here we are, verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And so what is this mystery? It's interesting. It's, this is the most fascinating mystery that is revealed in the New Testament. And so you see it. And now I'm going to tell you um, one of the views of this, and, and, I, and I couldn't argue with it, is that in the context that it, what is being talked about here from, from chapter 1 uh, through chapter 3 is there, there is a dispensation that is characterized by grace. By grace. And so you see it over in First uh, Timothy chapter 1. And so, and notice we're here where Paul is in um, Ephesus, and he, oh, excuse me, sends Timothy over to Ephesus, and notice what he said in verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I, uh, when I, uh, when I went into Macedonia, that thou might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. No other kind of Old Testament doctrine. And here you can see that um, what is that doing is that when you have people who are teaching a different kind of Old Testament doctrine and what are they doing? They're taking the Old Testament and they're, they're making mythology out of it. That's what they're doing. They'll use the Old Testament and they'll allegorize it. The lambs of your life. I know we don't bring lambs to church, but the lambs of your life, slaying the lambs of your life, this kind of foolishness is what you will hear. And so they're taking the Old Testament and they're misusing it, right? And so, and he says, and some of this was going on over in uh, Ephesus and Paul told Timothy, and it's interesting that this is, was happening in Ephesus because Ephesus really was a doctrinal church. Somewhere they slipped. <laughs> word, word to the wise. Just because you're a sound church today don't mean you will be tomorrow. Some of the best churches in, New, in the New Testament slipped. <laughs> and so he says uh, that they teach no other kind of Old Testament doctrine, neither to give heed to fables, or really the word fables is mythologies and endless genealogies, which uh, minister um, questions rather than really the dispensation from God, the one in faith. That's how I would translate that. It's really a bad translation there and how they translate that godly edifying. So do. it's not really a good translation. I actually think the NIV does better with that, doesn't it, uh, Scott? I think. Oh, you've, you've not, you're done with that. <laughs> you moved on. But I think that they say the stewardship of God, which is actually better than what is being said here. And, and so it's the dispensation from God, the one in faith. Now you can see that the problem here was legalism. This is what the problem was. And why am I going through this? Because it's going to set up what he says concerning the faith. Verse 5, now the end of this commandment is love out from a pure heart and a good conscience and from faith, unfeigned, unhypocritical faith. All law can produce is hypocrisy. You can see it with the Pharisees. Remember what we read yesterday when the Lord told, he said about the Pharisees, they, they, they say and do not. Everything that they do is to be seen by men. It's all hypocrisy. That's what law produces. It can't produce genuineness, you see. I like the way Dr. Schaefer used to say it. He said some of these people who say that they, 
live by law, following them home and interview their family members, you'll find out how righteous they are. <laughs> you really will. Grace produces genuineness. Law cannot produce that. And so notice he says, verse six, from which have uh, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain janglings, just empty talk. And notice why. Verse seven, desiring to be teachers of the law. And notice they desire this, but they don't understand what they say, nor wherefore they affirm. In other words, they pound the pulpit saying what they say. And it don't matter how, long, how hard you pound the pulpit. If what you're saying is wrong, you can pound it as loud as you want to. It's still wrong and it's still off. And these guys do that. And so notice he goes on this, uh, and talking about law teaching. So here's the problem here. We are, this dispensation is characterized by grace. And there is a doctrine that comes with regard to this dispensation that teaches believers how to live, how to overcome your spiritual enemies. The deacon has to understand regarding that how to live in such a way as to operate as a deacon in this dispensation. Not being one who is legalistic and applying law principles. Well, you know what will happen with that? Well, what do people do with, with love, right? Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. We're supposed to love everybody. Taking the church's resources and using it for the world if a deacon is not living by this edict, they will get themselves in a lot of trouble. And so there's a mystery concerning the faith. And let's look at the faith and we'll, we'll kind of uh, look at some of that and try to figure out what he's talking about. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. And so that's, that's a view of it. And, I, and I, I can't argue with that. I think in the context, it makes sense. That that's what is being talked about here, that there is a mystery that the deacon has to, to be able to make distinctions between the dispensation of law and the dispensation of grace in order to be an effective deacon. And so let's look at verse one of chapter four. Um, notice you see this idea of the faith in uh, chapter one. And it, so there seems to be some doctrine behind this use of the term the faith that provides for how believers can live by grace. And so that you see that there is, in the last days it was prophesied that many would turn away from this doctrine. And so notice in verse 1 of chapter 4, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in latter, latter time or in, um, in the last uh, seasons, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And notice it's all of this, don't do this, don't do that, right? Notice verse 3, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving to them which believe and know the truth. And we know that we can eat everything, can't we, Miss J? Or Jeanette? <laughs> okay, it's, it's, it's all right. Uh, we can eat anything that we can give thanks for. <laughs> we can eat anything that we can give thanks for, right? In this dispensation. And so those who... <laughs> Don said even chitlins. <laughs> and so 
there are people who, uh, and you can see it today in, in a lot of places, there are people who are observing a lot of the Old Testament meals, a lot of the Old Testament feasts, and they've gone back into that. And they're not living really by this dispensation. And so, and so this idea of forbidding and, you know, you have a lot of people who say, oh, you can't only eat this kind of food for religious purposes and all of this kind of stuff. But deep faith is a doctrine that tells you how you can actually overcome your spiritual enemies. Let's look at one other side, point of it and then we'll try to move on. In Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, notice in verse 7, you see it with regard to Paul as he winds down his life. He's getting ready to die and notice he starts off in verse 1 and he says, I charge thee therefore before God the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season out of, and out of season. You know, I, I tend to think that as pastor teachers, we say that, but we forget what else he's getting ready to say here. We, it's preach the word, but notice he also says rebuke, reprove, and exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when men will not endure. That word sound doctrine is a healthy Old Testament doctrine, you see. That's the thing that is happening in Christendom today that separates those who are living in this dispensation and those who are not. They cannot endure their proper use of the Old Testament. It drives them crazy. They want to take the Old Testament and apply it everywhere they see it. And that's the thing that characterizes us. So they don't want to live in this dispensation characterized by grace. They want to drag the Old Testament law in and be able to kind of dance around with that and live by grace too. And so what I think has been created is this, this pseudo uh, doctrine of, Christian, of grace and law together. And it really has had an effect on the church. It really has, a, has had a damning effect on the church because it has robbed people of their belief and their ability to understand that the word of God really gets down to where the rubber meets the road with what, what happens to your life today. It really robs you of that. And so notice he says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they will, um, after their own lust, shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn their ears away from the truth. And Dan talked about that, about how to overcome specifically your sin nature. And just by the way, I think Dan did an excellent job. And I think that one of the problems is, and I continue to tell you, I'm not buying into a lot of the psycho babble. I think a lot of the emotional problems people are having are rooted in spiritual issues. That's You're not going to get me to buy into a lot of that nonsense. It's, a lot of it's just nonsense. Psychobabble yeah. is a good... It is just psychobabble. <laughs> it's psychobabble. Yeah. And so you did a good job of pointing that out. And so a lot of the problems are rooted in spiritual problems. And what the society is telling you today is no, it's psychological problems. Okay, if you want to live in la-la land and lunacy, go for it. You'll never... Solve the problem if you do. And so notice he says, they'll turn their ears away from the truth and they shall be turned aside unto fables. Oh, tell me a story. Tell me how Moses parted the Red Sea and how we walked through the, they walked through the Red Sea and how I can walk through the Red Seas of my life, you know, and this kind of thing. And that's what you have going on. And so uh, he says, but you watch thou in all things endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of your ministry. For I am now re ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. 
I have fought. And so you have what is called a cognitive accusative here. And so he's going to say the thing that he's doing is what he actually has accomplished. I have fought the good fight. I just love this here. I have finished my course. Here he knows he's come down to the end. It's time to go. What will you say on your deathbed? <laughs> Paul could say, hey, I've, I've finished my course. I, I think back to what he says in, in the 20th chapter of Acts when he says that uh, I might finish my course with what? Joy. He says, I finished my course and notice I have kept the faith. And so this body of doctrine, I believe here that he was successful in overcoming his enemies, not only his sin nature, but also to Satan, also the world system. Do you know, I mean, that's a challenge for the believer today. I mean, how many of us will, can say that we, we are actually making headway in overcoming our spiritual enemies? On a continuum, that we're making headway with it. And that we actually even recognize that we're even engaged. There's a lot of, you know what, a lot of people are not even engaged I think about uh, when we were practicing football back in high school and the coach would have to tell a player every now and then, get your head in the game. Why? The players are sitting over there thinking about what happens, <laughs> what's going to happen tomorrow. They're thinking about what happened last week. Or they just, they were like daydreaming. And their head wasn't in the game. And that can happen to us as believers. Really. And so we're just lollygagging. So this idea of the faith is there's a mystery, and I believe the mystery here is, is that the deacon has to recognize that this is a dispensation characterized by grace, and in doing so, he would be able to overcome his spiritual enemies and properly be able to use the resources of the church for the right purposes. Now, we understand today that they, from a believer's point of view, that um, the, the church is for believers, and have Galatians 16, as you have opportunity, do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. And that the first persons that are going to get the resources of the church are going to be believers. Now, that's not characteristic of a lot of people today. They'll tell you it's quite the opposite. Well, they won't say that the believers should get the last, but pretty much that's what they're saying. And so we believe you help other, other people as there's opportunity. But it's the household of faith that is the, the directed to, to uh, the resources of the church is going to be directed to them above all. And even if in my personal life, as I have the opportunity to be able to help someone, if there's an unbeliever and a believer, I'm going to help the believer first. <coughs> okay, and so... We, that brings us to Philippians, the third chapter. And so we see it, the characteristics of mature, the maturing saints are outlined in Scripture. And so in Philippians, chapter three, this is just an interesting, just, just a wonderful chapter, as they say that I say that all the time about every chapter. But this is a wonderful. <laughs> do you hear me? Wonderful <laughs> chapter here. And it's just amazing because Paul goes from telling you what his mindset was as a Pharisee to how he gained some understanding of how to live by grace and what it produced. And so he always saw himself not as having arrived. 
And that's very important for a believer to understand. You and I are not going to get to the point where we can say, I close this up. I got it. Got it down. This is not one of those things where you're going to be able to say that. And so it's just a relative maturity that you see that you get to. And he's constantly striving for it. And just look at the first part of this book. And so notice he talks about in verse one. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is not indeed not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the, uh, the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence. We're not persuaded uh, by the flesh. And though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh he hath other, wherefore he might trust in the flesh, I more. Now he gives his pedigree, verse 5. Circumcised the eighth, eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. You realize that there was a righteousness under law. In Romans, the 10th chapter, Paul says that, right, that, that there was a righteousness that you could have under law. And really, in each each dispensation, you can see a righteousness that God provided for people to live by. And Paul says that was one under law. And when it came to righteousness under the law, nobody could blame me concerning this righteousness. I adhered to it. And I think that, that righteousness was not before God. Right. It was before men. Men could see it. Now notice, uh, but what things were gained to me, those things I counted loss for, um, for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, whom I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And notice here, verse, six, verse 9, and be found where? In him. Not having my own righteousness, which is out from, and notice, now, I think these anarthrous uses of words are really important. And he uses this anarthrous use of the word nomos, which is the word law here. And why, do, why is that important? Because he's not just talking about the Mosaic law. So he says, and not having my own righteousness, which is out from law, inequality of law. Right? This is kind of how we weigh and balance ourselves, not so much to God, but certainly to other people. We come up with our own rules to show how righteous we are to other people. You know, maybe there's some function that is going on at the church or maybe you're giving or whatever and you're comparing yourself to other people about how righteous you are in comparison to somebody else, right? We all have all of these little laws that we come up with and we justify ourselves by them. Paul says, not having my own righteousness, which is out from any quality of law. You know, we can, it's funny, over in the second uh, Corinthians there in the 12th chapter, he said he was very careful about how he represented himself to other people. Not giving people a false impression of who he is. You know, Christendom does that. We're actually exalted in doing that. And there's a righteousness that you and I can falsely have that's not based upon what? 
what Christ has already done. Second Corinthians five. I wear this scripture out. He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Where in him. I wear that scripture out. It's one of the most wonderful scriptures. Again, I say that <laughs> until you get to the next one. <laughs> then you can wear out. And so, he, and, but the righteousness which is from go, through, uh, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is out from God, and it's what? By faith. God counts me to be righteous. I haven't done anything to earn it. There is nothing I can do to earn it. I operate from which he wants me to operate because I am totally dependent on what he's done. Somebody said to, about Lewis Perry Chafer and they asked him, when you, got that, when you get to heaven, what are you going to say to God when he get, get ready to go into heaven? Are you going to say, I started a seminary? He said, no, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say it's only because of what the son did. Well, look at all those books that you wrote. And I'm going to say it's only because of what the son did. And we'll look at all of the people you impacted. It's only because of what the son has done. There is nothing else. And as the believer is able to apprehend that, you can actually be at ease, live by grace, and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work. Paul learned the secret about that. And so notice he says, verse 10, that I may know him. And so here you have this idea, you, it's a, you have a purpose infinitive here. It's a purpose that you have an experiential knowledge of him. Now I think here is talking about this position that we have, uh, and that I may know him and the power um, belonging to his resurrection. And there's a power that the believer gains. And I, I, look, if you understand as you live in your position in Christ, as you live by grace, you don't have to live this life on your own strength. There's a lot of people who are wearing themselves out. They're trying to live by their own power trying to do their own works. They're trying to live, trying to show other people who they are instead of just trusting in what the Son has done. Now, I just want to show you one scripture here in 2 Timothy 2. It's just really, again, a wonderful verse here. (laughs) Each verse we get to, it's just wonderful. (laughs) And 2 Timothy chapter 2. So what was happening with Timothy here? Here, I believe you see that he's under a lot of satanic attack. He's being persecuted. Um, he's under a lot of pressure there at, uh, at uh, Ephesus. And I think that they're ready to, they're telling him, ah, Timmy, you go on home to mama, we'll handle this. And Paul tells him to go back in there. And, uh, and he's having to write to him the second time. Obviously, the first epistle didn't do it. And he's writing to him to notice what he says to him. Verse 8, be thou therefore already, stop being ashamed of me. I believe Timothy was ashamed to even say that he knew Paul. He uses this word three times, I think, in this context. And he says again that uh, Onesiphorus uh, actually wasn't ashamed of him. He sought him out. But Timothy didn't. You can talk about somebody so badly that people will not want to be associated with them. 
right? They wouldn't even want to be called to say that you knew that person, right? And this is what was happening with Paul in Ephesus. And so notice, he says here, uh, verse 6, 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, or really it's a spirit of uh, timidity or cowardice, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now notice down in the second chapter, he tells them, Be thou therefore empowered. Um, and so there's this power by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Notice, it's the grace, God providing something for you that you did not deserve, you did not earn. And where is that empowerment comes from? There's an invigoration that the believer gets when you live in your position in Christ and you experience the grace of God and you understand it's not on me. Do you realize when you know this is not on you, that all the pressures is taken off. Somehow, believers believe God put us here to do this work, and he, all the pressure is on us to get it done. When you think that, you're not going to really experience the grace of God. There's an empowerment that the believer can get when you live in your position in Christ, and you're able to experience God's grace as a result of living there. Why? Because in Christ, God counts me to be uh, who, he, who I am because of what Christ has done on my behalf. Again, it's totally void of anything that you've, you've done or can do. It, it, sound, it sounds like a, I mean, it's a simple thing, right? You would think this is very simple to understand, but very complex because most believers won't let it go. I mean, we, we are so driven to try to prove ourselves to other people. Maybe it's because I'm getting old, but I really don't care anymore. I don't care. I don't care what people think about me. I don't care. I, I just want to uh, uh, live in my position in Christ and accomplish what the Lord wants me to accomplish. And when you get to that point where you just say that it's more about what he wants than what other people think about you, it's a huge thing. You can really experience God's grace as a result of that. And so there's an empowerment that comes, an invigoration that the believer gets to accomplish God, what God wants you and I to accomplish while we're in this life. And so Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And so that resurrection power, you see it in Romans 6, that we've been raised together with Christ. We're seated together with him. We're seen as being raised together with him. And remember, we talked about the two types of lives there are. You have resurrection life, which is what? Anybody remember? Position. Yeah, it's your position or me in Christ. And then you have eternal life is Christ in me, Right. And so God counts me to have been raised together with Christ. Did you do anything to earn that? I mean, nobody here did anything to earn that. Nobody. And so that's just an amazing thing. And so notice he says there's this power that comes as a result of that and to, to share in common with the sufferings of Christ. And the fact that Paul says that I might share in common with his suffering or the suffering of the saints around the world. And so Paul had a desire to do that. And we don't always recognize that part of it for sure. But I give you in 1 Peter 5, 9. Now here, these saints here, they were, you talk about suffering saints. You, you know the context here, right? These saints were suffering as a result of the 
uh, Nero and what he did in Rome. And so um, you see this uh, used um, concerning the sufferings of Christ uh, and the sufferings that uh, these believers were, were, believers were going through. And so here's, again, emotional problems that you can have as a result of suffering. Here, this one is anxiety. And what does it come from? It comes from persecution. In this instance, it was because of persecution. Everybody's going to have anxiety. I have anxiety. You have anxiety. We all have anxiety at some point. It's okay. It's okay to say that that happens. It happens to all believers. Remember, there is no temptation to overcome you except what is common to man. And so here you see it here in 1 Peter 5. Humble yourself, verse 6, therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting your care. That, that care is your, uh, as our word that we would translate anxiety or anxiousness upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, for, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion. And why does a lion roar? Don, I know you know that, Mr. Old Testament. <laughs> why does he roar? Intimidate. To intimidate. You know, they say that when a lion roars, he freezes his prey. The prey stops in his tracks. That's what a lion roars for. And it makes, it, makes the prey more susceptible. And that's what happens in, a lot, in this situation. You see that Satan is like or similar to a lion. If you ever notice a lot of the things that Satan tempts you with and the fear and the things that you're anxious about never materializes. So mostly Satan doesn't have to do anything because all he has to do is just send out a signal like he actually is going to do something and you're so discombobulated, he's already won. He doesn't have to do anything else. Most people are scared of their own shadow. He doesn't have to do anything. And that's what he does. And so, and so he's like a, a lion in that way. Notice going about seeking, he's looking actively for whom he can eat up. He's looking around seeking whom he might be able to devour. Is the word, knowing whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren. Um, uh, the word afflictions there is there's your word there, Dan, for sufferings. Actually, it's translated sufferings there. And this idea of sufferings, and there's sufferings that are uh, happening in the body of Christ that uh, uh, Paul desired to share in common with. Now notice, going back to Philippians in verse 10, Philippians 3 and 10. So notice what he says here uh, in verse 11. If by some means... Now here you have an idiom. This, um, it's uh, the word I and uh, post used together, and it's used that way in several places of... Um, I, would, I would translate it, uh, there was a measure of uncertainty here. Um, and you see it used that way in Acts 27, 12 and Romans um, eleven fourteen. We won't go there. But the idea that if possibly, if by some means I might uh, attain to the, ris- uh, uh, that I, I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, some people, you know, a lot of translators you read would say, think that he's talking here about at the rapture. But I think here he's talking about right now in his presence in salvation. Yeah. But, but it's a comp- the reason I think they picked that up is because it's, it's an out resurrection. It's not a standard word for resurrection. Right. It's ek nekron, which is. And, and that would be out from among. 
dead. Well, it's interesting when you look at those words for death, there's several words, a lot of words for death in the New Testament. Really, it's you could write a paper on death. There's your paper there, Don. So you have Thanatos. Thanatos looks at the fact of separation. When you die, your soul and your spirit are separated from your body. That's that, the point of death. This necros, it has the idea of being in a state of death. You're in a state of being dead. So here you have these other ones that are dead, and you see it used physically as well as in, in a spiritual sense. So this resurrection out from among dead ones. And so there's other people who are still in a state of death, and you have been raised out from among those who are, are dead. And so he says, if perhaps that I might attain to the, the resurrection, the one out from among dead ones is how I would translate that. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. And so it's interesting here. He says, not as though, though I had already uh, attained. That word attained is actually from uh, Lambano. It's an heiress form. Not as though I had already attained at a point and it's done. That it's not going to happen. Oh, I've arrived, Right. Not that I've, I've gotten there and it's done, right? Now, and this, and this gives you insight to know that he's talking about this, this present tense salvation because he says he's not talking about physical death or he couldn't have said this, right? Not as though I've already reached this perfection. Well, you wouldn't say that he's saying that about physical death, right? Well, he wouldn't be talking, would he? No, he's talking about how he's living in this dispensation, not as though I had already attained or already has rec- have received it, but notice, um, but I uh, are either already perfect. Now, interesting here it is. We have a perfect tense of the um, 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 the the use for the word for uh, perfect, um, um, and so it's a subjunctive idea that the possibility that he might have been made complete or reached perfection. But notice, I follow or I pursue after, if that I may apprehend that also that I am apprehended of Christ. And so he says this idea of uh, to pursue. Um, Courtney did a word study on that some months ago. The idea of pursuing different things or to to uh, um, make a beeline toward or to follow after is the idea. And what was the point that he may lay hold of? All that he was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And so this idea of reaching uh, perfection or maturity and apprehending the things that God had apprehended him for. And notice what he says in verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself. I don't reckon myself to have apprehended it um, or to have laid hold of it. But interesting here, this one thing I do. Forgetting those things that are, which are behind. And interesting, reaching that word to, to stretch out like a runner in a race. You just imagine he's doing this. He's stretching out like a runner in the race, trying to cross the finish line, stretching out toward those things uh, unto those things which are before. And then he goes on to say, I press toward the mark toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So we have the maturing saint can share in common with Christ's sufferings. The maturing saint can desire conformity uh, to Christ's death. And he sees himself in a perpetual state 
of maturation. Uh, notice in verse uh, on uh, page 19, the maturing saint understands that maturity is relative and incomplete in this life. And so we see the teleos word that we uh, showed you over there. And I give you again the definition to be complete uh, with its, uh, in its chief component as totality or as opposed or impartial or limited of things of full measure or uh, entire. And that's uh, Freiburg. And so notice as Paul uh, pursued the mark or followed after with haste or presumably with intensity of effort in order to catch up with or um, for friendly or hostile purposes. And so I ran ahead of myself, but let's jump over to uh, page 20. The maturing saint is able to exercise the faculties of his mind where we dealt with this back earlier. Uh, and just again, um, mm, okay, let's go there. Hebrews 5, just, just as, as a review, uh, we dealt with this earlier in the, uh, in the uh, trimester, but we'll do a little review of it in Hebrews 5. Uh, just as, as a reminder, because it is important to understand. And so um, now here you have the, the word here um, uh, that is used um, in Paul in verse 14. But strong meat belongs uh, to them that are of full age, uh, really those who are maturing. And so it is true, and as strong meat is used, uh, you have contrasts of milk for carnal people. And so Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I could not speak to you as spiritual, but as carnal. I fed you with milk. Now, what is milk? Well, and I don't know, Don passed it before, and I'm sure there's some places you go that honestly you understand that there's nothing that you can say you have to really limit what you have to you say, right? You might have been in that situation as well. You know, you, you really put limits on what you can say. And really, it's, I don't want to say it's baby talk, but it's just a step above it <laughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, but in some ways, I mean, you just be, be bled by the Holy Spirit in some of these places. I actually remember when my father passed away, I was asked to speak at a church in um, Oklahoma, and it was in Tulsa, and it was a pretty big-sized church. And I... It was the church I went in, and I saw a, um, they had a credit union. So I thought, huh, not much is going to be said here of any consequence. But you know, God led me to say some things at that church that I wouldn't normally say, and there were people who responded to it. And so God has people everywhere. You just don't know. You, you'll be surprised where people are that God is, is, uh, uh, is uh, using. And so... But normally strong meat belongs to those who are maturing. And so there's a level of teaching that you're going to teach those who are maturing that you would not to those who are not, particularly when believers are carnal. I mean, you, 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 you're limited as to what you're going to be able to teach them. Uh, who by reason of use, notice, remember we talked about how he explains this, this uh, the activity of one who is maturing. You know, they say the seven habits of the highly successful businessman. Wasn't that a book like that? Well, here you can see one of the things that happens with somebody who's maturing, who by reason of use have exercised their senses, or really I would say the faculties of their minds. They've actually put the, 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 um, 
this part of their mind, or really you would say the perception of their mind. Now at the bottom of page 20, I show you a couple of places where that's used. You see it used in Luke 9, 45 of the disciples and their inability to comprehend the information that God gave them. It's used there. And then also in uh, Philippians 1, 9, it's, it, just look over there. It's used of how the believers actually to have perception of how to direct agape love. In Philippians 1, 9. No, no, we're not going to look. <laughs> yeah, I just mentioned that one. <laughs> Philippians 1, 9. Now notice uh, in verse 5, uh, verse 8, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound more and more with all in knowledge and all, uh, this word judgment is actually is um, the idea of perception or it's our same word that's actually translated over in Hebrews, the faculties of the mind. There's some discernment that actually has to go on with the believer knowing how to direct love and when it needs to be directed. Uh, and so you see it used that way. And so I give you some other things concerning strong meat and some background information that you guys can study that on page uh, 21 there. We won't deal with that. The last thing I want to deal with is the fact on page 22, maturing believers... Um, uh, excuse me, uh, a maturing saint is able to come to the aid of a weaker bu- brother in Second Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. Second Thessalonians 3, and verse, notice in verse 6 through 15. Now, you, you will find a lot of different kind of believers in the church and so as a believer, as, as you and I, as we're spiritual, we're growing, you can see, for example, a spiritual believer can discern when someone is in a trespass. You, if you're not spiritual, you won't, it'll, it'll, you'll miss it, right? As Dan explains, a trespass is different. So someone comes to you and they're telling you about something they've determined to do. That might, it's not sin, but it's unrighteous. And you might say to them, well, you know, if you're spiritual, you say, hey, I wouldn't do that if I were you. This is not something you really a believer should be doing. Um, but you see other believers that are in different states. And I believe a maturing believer is able to discern what's going on with people. Right. You can see what's going on with people. And so as you look through scripture, you see these various types of states that believers can be in. And so notice it, we'll pick it up in verse six. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother which walketh disorderly um, and not. Did I get it right? Second Thessalonians three. Yeah. Uh, Not. um, okay, not. (laughs) I'm throwing off here and not after the traditions which you've received of us, for you yourselves know you, how you ought to uh, follow us, for we, beha- we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, uh, and we, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, uh, not because we have not power to make ourselves an example unto, to follow you, uh, but, uh, unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded, this, uh, commanded you that if any would not eat, uh, work, neither should he eat. 
For we hear that there are some which walk dis among you disorderly, walking, uh, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And so this idea of, just to cover this, the idea of socialism and somebody paying for everyone else, it's not a biblical thing. You understand that. You know, here's the thing that you always say, if a, and it's clear from Scripture, if a man don't work, he ought not to eat. There's something like hunger pains. There's something about hunger pains that force people to want to work. If they don't work, they shouldn't eat. Well, that's mean. Well, that's just horrible that God you could say that. But you don't understand human nature. You don't understand human nature. And, and so, um, and notice he says, verse 13, be not weary, um, uh, uh, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Um, and so, yeah, here's our word there. And if any man obey not our epistle, uh, note that man and have company with him, that he might be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This uh, word for weary, I think, is... Um, uh, that's not the word, huh? Uh, it's <coughs> yeah, I think it's actually over, what I was looking for was over in Romans. I don't know why I put Second Thessalonians, Romans 14. Okay, I think I got my scriptures wrong here. Yeah, but I don't, yeah, I don't think that's the one. Uh... Yeah, it's well, you have that word for weak, but there is another um, scripture there where it talks about the fact that uh, um, support the weak. But let's let's do this. Let's go to Galatians six. It's another place that you see it. Um, and so here, ah, let's just do this because we're at the, the closing hour. I'll come back to this and I'll get the right scripture and we'll deal with this next week. We have two more weeks left. Uh, next week we'll try to close out and then we'll have our, um, we'll have our test in, uh, last week. All right. <laughs>